0: Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. O Lord God, Isaiah spoke of your glory, your holiness, your heavenly throne, the worship that you receive from angels, the true temple in the heavens. And Isaiah himself was overwhelmed at the glory that he saw and because that glory overwhelmed him in his smallness, and his sinfulness, his unholiness. What a privilege to have seen you and what a scary undoneness he experienced. You, Lord God, are the Holy One, and you have provided atonement for sin, as this prophecy declares. It's a picture, a foreshadowing of the work of you, Lord Christ, in atoning for our sins and offering yourself in our place. We pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us to see the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, as you know, and we are doing our series this year for Easter uh, from two Psalms, and we're looking at the greater Son of David. of course, Jesus Christ is the greater Son of David. That's who we're talking about. Um, Palm Sunday is the day that we remember the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that historic event, the beginning of Jesus Christ's Passion Week, when he would die eventually on the cross for our sins and be raised for our justification. And we've read that story today from the Gospel according to John, that historical account. And Palm Sunday really celebrates two main events. One, of course, is that historic day when he entered Jerusalem, was proclaimed as our king and our savior. But it also speaks to the fact that he would be raised after his resurrection, ascended into heaven, and he would reign from there, and eventually we look forward to his return when he will reign openly in glory upon this earth. And that's what we're going to consider today, this particular Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the future earthly reign of our Lord Jesus Christ as our perfect King. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. And we'll consider this prayer or prophecy of Jesus Christ. You can also follow along, and it's printed for you in your worship folder. But the time we're talking about in the future is the time when Jesus Christ himself will be actually vindicated in this present world order of things. It's a glorious conclusion to history for God, for his Messiah, for the people of God, for creation, for society, for culture. It's a time, a great time of transition. It would be the greatest blessing for all of history as we know it, and we'll get to enjoy the world as it's meant to be. But yet this time will also be an aperture that looks forward to yet something greater, and that would be the new heavens and the new earth. It would be a preview in this kingdom for the full and final glory of God and for His people. So it's my prayer and hope. And the psalmist in Psalm 72 that our hope in Jesus Christ and the glory of his coming kingdom would increase, and our hope for peace. So this psalm, as we go through it, you'll see is really a prayer. It's a prayer for the Messiah King to come, and the universal extension of what that kingdom is going to be all about, justice, righteousness, and peace. And so, as we go through this prayer, we see in the first four verses we're praying, may the perfect king come. And then in verses 5 to 14, in the middle of the psalm, we're praying that he would bless the whole world with his kingdom. And finally, in verses 15 to 20, we'll pray more specifically as we get there, we'll see it, that Jesus Christ will be vindicated and glorified. Now, at the beginning of the psalm, you probably see the words there in your superscription. It says, of Solomon. Solomon. And some of the psalms have superscriptions, some don't. But in this psalm, it can be translated of Solomon or for Solomon. Some of you will have different translations. Solomon reigned over Israel in about the 10th century B.C. And so its original setting could be, and most consider it, that it was a prayer by Solomon himself, of Solomon. And that it was about fulfilling his God-given role as king. And maybe it was written shortly after he became king, or maybe it was an anniversary for for his anointing. Some also think it was a prayer that essentially David wrote his father for him, for Solomon. And perhaps then at David's death or later on it was penned for King Solomon. But the psalm in its historical setting is really important to consider too, because it's a reminder not only of the high calling for the kings of Israel that they had, but the fact that none of them actually could attain it. So you pray for these things, you hope for these things, the kings would look forward to that, the people would, but ultimately they were not able to attain it. And so it speaks of a future king, a greater king. And so even though this psalm has a clear historical background, which is important in and of itself, it also is obvious that it's a prayer for the greater son of David the Messiah to come. And that was understood by the Jewish people of the time. Perhaps even David and Solomon understood that. And it's been the position of the church of Jesus Christ ever since. God's promise for the eternal perpetuity of the throne of David led to this viewpoint because that was given in 2 Samuel 7 where it says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And as we enter into the New Testament, this hope gets confirmed in Jesus Christ because over and over and over again, the writers of the New Testament emphasize that Jesus is that son of David who would inherit the throne. That even more so that he is that eternal son of God who has come to earth. And so this psalm, Psalm 72, is a prayer and it's a prophecy as well of the coming Messiah, the greater Son, and his reign. Only the Messiah would be able to truly and f- perfectly fulfill all the blessings that are mentioned in Psalm 72. In fact, we'll be going over a lot of passages this morning from the Old Testament and from the New, and it'd be good if you jot them down. You could use them for your meditations even this week, and Holy Week, as Easter's coming up. So let's take a look at the first part of Psalm 72, the prayer. Verse 1 speaks about God being an honor, God's honorable king, rather. It speaks about God's honorable king, and then the prayer and the prophecy for the perfect king comes out in verses 2 to 4. So the psalm begins, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And so this was the role, the role that a king of Israel would play, and it was probably, in humanly speaking, would have been most realized in David's dynasty, King David's dynasty, and the king was supposed to establish Yahweh's justice, that is, making right decisions, righteous ones, and to live out the character of righteousness and to engender royalty, or, or that is, uh, loyalty from the people to God and to the kingdom, and thus bring peace, especially to the needy. Now, the ability to be able to do this was understood by the king's that it didn't come from within themselves. The ability to accomplish this would have to come from God himself. And so, for example, we read the instructions from Moses himself about what a king is supposed to do and how he's to be dependent upon God and his word. And so Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, beginning there. So I always give you the first verse, and then you can just read the rest on your own. So Deuteronomy 17:18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may be able to learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And so this is where that dependency comes in. And how would it be that even humanly speaking, that some justice and some righteousness from God would be able to be in the land of the people? And then we look at Solomon's request, for example, as king, after his father David went on to glory. And we read this in 1 Kings 3:6. Solomon said... You've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, accordingly as he walked before you, in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart before you. And you've reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I'm but a little child, and I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen. A great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And so you see here Solomon's proper heart disposition, that of dependency and that of humility before God. And then comes in verses two to four, this prayer and prophecy about the perfect king. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with the justice. Let the mountains bear peace for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So this prayer expressed express Solomon's desire to judge with God's justice, to live out and establish the righteousness of God, which is very simple. That is, you destroy the wicked people and you give justice to those that they oppressed. And the overflow of this is going to be peace. That's the shalom here, okay? That's what it says. Some translations say prosperity, fine. So, but that will be the overflow of all of this will be the well-being, the wholeness of the people of God. And then the details get put into, like this poetic form in verses 3, And four for us. Now, we should take note here of an important thing about uh, Hebrew language in case uh, you get confused at some point. So some of your translations are going to say things. They're going to have the prayer version. So it's going to read like, may he judge the peoples. Let the mountains bear. May he defend. May he fear you. you It goes on and on. And so it's a prayerful translation. Other versions are going to have like a prophecy translation. And they're going to start off by saying, He will judge your people. The mountains will bear prosperity. He will defend the cause. And so you'll see different translations. And they're both valid from the, from the Hebrew language. So which is it? We don't know. It's not always clear from the context. Uh, but we can use both of them actually in our manner of reading the psalm. Because if you think about it for a little bit, they do have an overlap in meaning. Because if you take it as a prayer... And you say, this is what we're praying for. We're praying for this king, this perfect king. Well, if you start praying that way, you're going to start looking for the answer to the prayer. And since then, it's really a prophecy about something coming in the future. And if you take it really and you translate it as that he's going to be doing these things, and it's a prophecy of what's coming, and you know that that's what's coming, well, then that prophecy is going to drive you to prayer beforehand so that you can actually see what's going to be coming. Now, this translation difficulty occurs throughout the psalm, verse 7, verses 9 through 11. But again, even this shows the messianic nature of this psalm because the psalm is about Solomon, but it's also about Solomon in a manner in which it's really about the coming Messiah, And that that's what we're looking forward to. And so we too pray with the psalmist in verses 1 through 4. May this perfect king come. The people of God would be blessed to have such a king if he could live out everything that Psalm 72 declares. We would all be blessed in it too, even though we're not used to monarchies in in our land. But the first virtue here of human government is put forth. Justice and righteousness. And it causes us to reflect on really all, how all human governments have and will continue to far, fall far short of the ideal. We have to be looking for a world and hoping for a world in which righteousness dwells. And it will be. And it will become clear as we look at the hope of Psalm 72. The key terms, again, stand out to us as we read here, justice, righteousness, and peace. These are the ideals of the kingdom of God. And these are the real characteristics of the kingdom that Christ is going to bring to this earth. I want to read to you a section from the prophet Isaiah this morning, where we'll see this. So starting in Isaiah 11, 1, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's our hope in Jesus Christ, the glory of this coming kingdom. For all these prophecies and there are many more, and these prayers of the people of God are going to be fulfilled one day when Jesus truly returns in the fullness of his glory. Well then the second part of the psalm prayer begins in Psalm in verse 5, Psalm 72's prayer, and now it's really praying that he'll just bless the whole world with his kingdom. This is the central section of the psalm, it becomes much clearer what we're looking for and hoping for in a divine Messiah King. And so there are three themes here that are are brought to our attention. So in verses 5 to 7, we read about Jesus reigning forever, but we we learn about the duration of the kingdom or its time frame. Uh, Then in verses 8 through 11, we learn about where it's going to take place, its place. That is that Jesus is going to reign over all of the earth and then in verse, verses 12 through 14, we learn about the character of the king, Jesus, and the character of his kingdom, and that Jesus is going to reign in the fullness of blessings. And so we begin then, may they fear you, or may, they, may, they, may he live, either translation is fine, but may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound until the moon be no more. So verse 5 begins with that phrase, let them fear, or it could be may he live is what it's talking about, but the point is forever. Fear him forever, may he live forever, it's expressed in terms of the sun and the moon and Either way, it's talking about an eternal reign and sovereign rule of this king. And the picture of this duration of the sun and moon is repeated throughout the psalm. It comes up again in verse 7, until the moon be no more, right? And in verse 17, it comes up there as well, where it says, as long as the sun. And so, speaking about at least the completion of this world order, but really looking forward to the forever that's coming. And this is ultimately the hope. Not just Jesus' reign and his earthly kingdom when he comes back, but truly forever in the new heaven and the new earth when he reigns. So surely Solomon wouldn't reign this long. He couldn't reign forever. He would die. But through the greater son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, that reign would continue forever, and it would be true. Jesus would be this eternal prince of David, and many prophets have prophesied this exactly. That's what we're talking about this morning, really you sum it all up, we're talking about the hope of the prophets. What do all the prophets speak about? What's the major theme that they're all concerned about? And that's what we're talking about this morning, our hope. And so if you're one of those people who likes to take notes, let me give you a bunch of passages that you could read on your own this week. Prophecies that speak. So there's Psalm 72 that we're looking at. And a couple other psalms would be Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So those three, that'd be enough anyway. But then Isaiah, I already read the section in Isaiah 11 you. Well, a couple other chapters that are really important to speak about this would be Isaiah chapter 2, um, Isaiah chapter 9, and Isaiah chapter 65. So 2, 9, 11, and 65 from the book of Isaiah all speak about this hope. The prophet Micah in his book, the whole two chapters that he concludes with in verses 4 and 5 speak about the same hope. The book of Daniel and his prophecy. Uh, chapter 2 and chapter 7. You can read the whole book, of course, but these two chapters speak about this hope very directly. Ezekiel, you can read a lot of that as well, but chapters 34 and 37, in particular there. The book of Zechariah, the very last chapter, verse 14, or chapter 14, rather. And then, of course, in the New Testament, just look at the end of the book of Revelation, the last four chapters, chapters 19 to 22. So all of these speak about the same hope that we're talking about, the same hope that Psalm 72 is speaking about. And then we get to, back to our passage, we get to verse 6, and it talks about, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass and showers that water the earth. And we see this simile about rain falling on mown grass and how it brings about a picture of refreshment to our minds, uh, brings to us this picture of growth, of goodness, of prosperity, And then verse 7 talks about the days of this king's kingdom. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon be no more. The righteous ones would flourish and will flourish in that kingdom. Peace will abound. These are the blessings of the Messiah's reign that we're looking forward to. They're going to be realized for real in this earth in that day. And yet, we remember also as well that that particular expression of the kingdom of God is, yes, a consummation of our present world order that we live in, but it's also taking us and causing us to look forward to the next, and that is the new heaven and the new earth, to look at both at the same time. Then we see that Jesus will reign over all the earth in verses 8 through 11. This speaks about the place. So we continue reading the psalm, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies look to dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So verse 8 really begins by recounting the extent of Solomon's kingdom in Palestine, as it was promised in Exodus chapter 23. And under Solomon, actually, the kingdom of Israel would gain its height in its territorial uh, conquests and grandeur. But Solomon, in all his glory here, only really functions ultimately to predict Jesus Christ and his greater greatness. I mean, even Jesus is the one that said "In something greater than Solomon's here, speaking about himself. Jesus Christ, the king, is going to get the whole earth as his dominion, not just a little parcel in the Middle East. And in light of verses 10 and 11 about all that's going on here and even verse 19 where it talks about may the whole earth be filled with his glory, it's an indication of his reign is going to be universal and it's going to be boundless and he's going to reign over the whole earth. And then verses 9 to 11 talk about the royalty and the leaders of the world and how they're going to bow before this messianic king. And again, we're probably reminded of a lot of prophecies. The ones I mentioned in Isaiah and Micah particularly, you can read those. Um, But here we have listed some leaders of some very powerful, at the time, desert nomadic clans. Tarshish probably refers to Spain or all the coastlands that are far off, and Sheba and Seba would refer to Arabian and African regions. That's a short list, really. It's a very short list It's ultimately going to include all the nations and all the peoples of the world when Jesus comes back. And it's good for us In our present time, and any time the people of God live, to hope for this glory, and you can even think through all the present kingdoms that the world has in the world, and you can even imagine them having to bring honor to Jesus Christ as king when he returns. It's a good exercise. Because then the prophecy from Genesis so long ago gets fulfilled, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, which is a way of referring to the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. At that time, when Jesus returns, those leaders who are his enemies are going to be publicly humiliated before him and all around the world. And his friends, the friends of Jesus Christ, are going to pay him homage and bring him gifts and do his will. And we have many biblical pictures of this that might immediately spring into our minds. So you think about Solomon himself. I mean, the immensity of his wealth and his power and his wisdom, it's all recorded in 1 Kings 4 for you. You can read it there. And as you read about Solomon's reign, that's what took place. His enemies feared him. They were humiliated before him. And all of those who honored him brought him gifts. And you would think perhaps of the Queen of Sheba, of many who did. 1 Kings chapter 10, you read about that. And her gifts and her praise of Solomon that were given to him. It's a reminder again of what Jesus said when something greater than Solomon is here. And then of course we look in the New Testament. We got another example of the Magi who travel from a foreign land. And they worship the Christ child in Matthew chapter 2. And they give him gifts for his royalty. And Herod is humiliated. And all these stories signify you see and promise so much more than just their historical realities. At this time, this time period that we're talking about in the future when Jesus returns in the millennial kingdom as we refer to it, it's a, it's a period of great political conquest where Jesus Christ will conquer his enemies. And so it'll be the great fulfillment of Psalm 110. And so you can turn there if you want to. There's so many to look at, but Psalm 110 says this. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations and fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside and lift up his head. And then when it's all over, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the end comes. Then comes the end, it says, the Apostle Paul writes, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God the Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And then finally, we get to the character of our king and his kingdom in verses 12 to 14. It really goes on through verse 16 in its images that go beyond compassion to even abundance. But we read in verses 12 to 14, For he, this king that we're looking at and talking about, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood, in his sight. You know, Solomon had such a vision of what it would be to be a compassionate king. And you can hear it for yourself in his prayer, and you can read his prayer in 1 Kings 8, the dedication of the temple, very compassionate. But even Solomon fell far short of the ideal. But when Jesus reigns over the earth, he's gonna fulfill that with perfect compassion and perfect justice. Finally, you see, when Jesus comes, it's, it's what we've been waiting for. It's what the world's been waiting for. It's what we all talk about and what we hope for. And then notice all the verbs that are used here in the section. Deliver, pity, or have compassion. Save, and rescue, or redeem. Jesus is going to do this for all the people of God because these lives of the afflicted and the needy are precious to him. And this is much more than just a sociological description of people's situations in the world, but it's really a description of the people of God theologically and how it's almost always the case, it seems, in the world that God's people are the ones that are under oppression, that are the ones that are in need and afflicted and poor. Well, Jesus Christ is going to accomplish everything here in verses 12 to 14 at his return. He'll be completed perfectly for us, For those also who live under his rule. And so may Jesus Christ bless the world with his kingdom. In verses 5 to 14 then you see we see a renewed society. Under the sovereign rule of the king. And the kingdom is going to be an experience of life in this world. The same world that we walk in and live in. The way it ought to be. So may our hope in Jesus Christ and the glory of his kingdom increase. The third part of the prayer Psalm 72 is, may Jesus be vindicated and glorified, as I've entitled it. So there's this ever-increasing blessing in verses 15 to 17. And then finally, the psalm closes with the doxology or a word of praise in verses 18 through 20. But then we continue to read then, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. So this is a kingdom of abundant blessing for the people of God, abundant honor for the Messiah. Solomon hoped for such blessing and honor, but only Jesus is going to receive it. And you look at these images of wealth and blessing and all of this flowing to our Savior Jesus, gold and blessings and grain from the mountaintops and fruit from the valleys and flourishing cities and honor and happiness. It's a very awesome picture of hope that is appropriately ours, and it's what we pray for someday that day. It's especially so when we get to verse 17, that's the crowning verse of the paragraph. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations Call him blessed. The name of Jesus Christ will be honored. His fame will be over all the earth. It will continually increase. Everyone will serve him for increasing and increasing fame. And then we get to the doxology as the psalm concludes. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So in verses 18 and 19, here's the conclusion to the whole psalm. Yahweh's done it all. His will is accomplished. He did it all by himself. And his marvelous deeds in the earth that he's accomplished. He's done everything exactly according to plan for millennia. The conclusion, you see, is a vision of worldwide extension of God's glory through his divine Messiah. And the only appropriate response is amen and amen. We're to take great joy in the future promises of this earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then verse 20 is simply a note in your Bible telling you the book two of the Psalms is over. That's Psalms 42 to 72. They're mainly Davidic prayers, prayers of David and praises of his, and that's basically over. Book three that starts after this is, contains the Psalms of Asaph, primarily, and goes through Psalm 83. So it just simply separates, it's a marker in in our Bibles that separates these collections. It doesn't mean there aren't any more psalms of David to come. But we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 72 here. I hope for a clearer vision as we read this psalm. And we read it on Palm Sunday. And we think about what happened on Palm Sunday. We think about what we're really hoping for. And we read those prophets. That we pray that Jesus Christ will be vindicated and glorified. You can use this psalm for your prayers and to increase your hope. Well, we've seen then, as we look at Psalm 72, through the reigns of David and Solomon, the reign of our ultimate king, Jesus Christ. Not only is David a type or a prefigurement of Jesus Christ, but Solomon is too. He's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ will be like in all of his glory. And so our prayer is the same Really, as Solomon in this psalm, praying for the perfect king to come. We're praying that when this king comes, he's going to bless the whole world. We're praying that when this king comes, who we know is Jesus Christ, that he will be vindicated in all of his glory. And it will be an open glory that we can all see and share. I want to close with another psalm, Psalm 2, which simply says this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. And that's where we take our refuge. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we adore you and exalt you as king. Even as we've read Psalm 72 and so many other passages even this morning, and there are many, many, many more, we're just amazed at how the scriptures predict your coming. Your coming again in open glory. And we look forward to that. We pray this morning as your people that our hope, Lord Jesus, in you would increase and that our hope for your coming kingdom would increase. We pray this for the sake of your current glory among us as your people. Amen.